Section nine of the Fifth Queen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Fifth Queen by Ford Maddox Ford. Part two. Chapter two. The Queen came to the revels given in her honour by the Lord Privy Seal. Cromwell had three hundred servants dressed in new liveries. Pikemen with their staves held transversely, like a barrier, kept the road all the way from the tower steps to Austin Friars, and in that Lutheran quarter of the town there was a great crowding together. Caps were pitched high and lost forever, and loud shouts of praise to God went up when the Queen and her Germans passed, with boys casting branches of holm, holly, bay, and yew, the only plants that were green in the winter season, before the feet of her mule. But the King did not come. It was reported to the crowd that he was ill at Greenwich. It was known very well by those that sat at dinner with her that after three days he had abandoned his queen and kept his separate room. She sat eating alone, on high beneath the dais, heavy, silent, placid, and so fair that her eyebrows appeared to be white upon her red forehead. She did not speak a word, having no English, and it was considered disgusting that she wiped her fingers upon pieces of bread. Hostile lords remarked upon all her physical imperfections, which the king, it was known, had reported to his physicians in a writing of many pages. Besides, she had no English, no French, no Italian, she could not even play cards with his highness. It was true that they had squeezed her into English stays, but she was reported to have wept at having to mount a horse. So she could not go a-hawking, neither could she shoot with the bow, and her attendants, the women bound about the middle and spreading out above and below like bolsters, and the men, who wore their immense scalloped hats falling over their ears even at meal-time, excited disgust and derision by the noises they made when they ate. The master Veritas had Catherine Howard in his keeping. He took her up into a small gallery near the gilded roof of the long hall, and pointed out to her, far below, the courtiers that it was safe for her to consort with, because they were friends of Privy Seal. His manner was more sinister and more meaning. "'You would do well to have to do with no others,' he said. "'I am like to have to do with none at all,' Catherine answered. "'For no mother's son cometh anigh me.' He looked away from her. Down below she made out her cousin Surrey, sitting with his back ostentatiously turned to a Lord Royden, of Cromwell's following. Her uncle plunged in his silent and malignant gloom, and Cromwell, his face lit up and smiling, talking earnestly with Chapuis, the ambassador from the Emperor. Eleven hundred dishes shall be served this day,' Veridus proclaimed, seeming to warn her. There can no other lord find so many plates of parcel gilt." His level and cold voice penetrated through all the ascending din of voices, of knives, of tuckets, of trumpets that announced the courses of meat and of the three men's songs that introduced the sweet jellies, which only Privy Seal, it was said, could direct to be prepared. Other lordlings all, Veridus continued with his sermon, who ruined themselves seeking in vain to vie with my lord. Most of those you see are broken men, whose favour would be worth naught to you." Tables were ranged down each side of the great hall, the men sitting on the right, each wearing upon his shoulder a red rose made of silk, since no flowers were to be had. 
The women, sitting upon the left, had white favours in their caps. In the wide space between these tables were two bears. Chained to tall gilt posts, they rolled on their hams and growled at each other. From time to time the serving-men who went up and down in the middle let fall great dishes containing craspices, cranes, swans, or boars. These meats were kicked contemptuously aside for the bears to fight over, and their places supplied immediately with new. Other serving-men broke priceless bottles of Venetian glass against the corners of tables, and let the costly Rhenish wines run about their feet. This, the master Veritas said, was intended to point out the wealth of their lord, and his zealousness to entertain his sovereigns. "'It would serve the purpose as well to give them twice as much fare,' Catherine said. "'They never could contain it,' Veridus answered gravely. "'So great is the bounty of my lord.' Throckmorton, the spy, enormous and bearded with the half-lion badge of the privy seal hanging round his neck from a gilt chain, walked up and down behind the guests, bearing the wand of a major-domo, affecting to direct the servers when to fill goblets, and listening at tables where much wine had been served. Once he looked up at the gallery, and his scrutinizing and defiant brown eyes remained for a long time upon Catherine's face, as if he too were appraising her beauty. "'I would not drink much wine with that man listening at my back. He came from my country.' and was such a foul villain that mothers fright their children with his name," Catherine said. Veridus moved his lips quickly upon one another, and suddenly directed her to observe that the new queen's headdress, broad and stiffened with a wire of gold, upon which large pearls had been sewn. "'Many ladies will now get themselves such headdresses,' he said. "'That will I never,' she answered. It appeared atrocious and Flemish clumsy spreading out and overshadowing the queen's heavy face. Their English hoods with the tails down made the head sleek and comely, or with the tails folded up and pinned square like flat caps, they could give to the face a gallant or pensive expression. "'Why, I could never get me in at the door of the confessional with such a spreading cloth!' Veridus had his chin on the rail of the gallery. He gazed down below with his snaky eyes. She could not tell whether he were old or young. "'You would more prudently abandon the confessing,' he said, without looking at her. "'My lord is minded that ladies who look to him should wear such.' "'That is to be a bond-slave,' Catherine cried indignantly. He looked round. "'Here is a great magnificence,' he uttered, moving his hand towards the hall. "'My lord Privy Seal hath a mighty power.' "'Not power enow to make me a laughing-stock for the men.' "'Why, this is a free land.' he answered. You may rot in a ditch, if you will, or worse, if treasonable actions be brought home to you." Down below, wild men dressed in the skins of wolves, hares, and stags ran round the tethered bears bearing torches of sweet wood, and a heavy and languorous smoke, like incense, mounted up to the gallery. Veridus' unveiled threat made the necessity for submission come once more into her mind. Other wild men were leading in a lion immense and lean as if it were a fawn-coloured ass. It roared and pulled at the golden chains by which the knot of men held it. Many ladies shrieked out, but the men dragged the lion into the open space before the dais, where the queen sat unmoved and stolid. "'Would your master have me dip my fingers in the dish, and wipe them on bread-mansions, as the queen does?' Catherine asked in a serious expostulation. "'It were an excellent action.' 
Veridus answered. There was a brazen flare of trumpets so that the smoke swirled among the rafters. Men with brass helmets and shields of brass were below in the hall. "'They are costumed as the ancient Romans,' Catherine said, lost in other thoughts. Suddenly she saw that whilst all the other eyes were upon the lion, Throckmorton's glare was again upon her face. He appeared to shake his head and to bow his immense and bearded form. It brought into her mind the dangerous visit of Bishop Gardiner. Suddenly he dropped his eyes. "'You see some friends?' Veridus' voice asked beside her. "'Nay, I have no friends here,' Catherine answered. She could not tell that the bearded spy's eyes were not merely amorous in their intention, for such looks she was used to, and he was a very vile man. In short, Veridus spoke, it were an excellent action to act in all things as the Queen does. For fashions are a matter of fashion. It is all one whether you wipe your fingers on bread-manchets or on napkins. But when a fashion becometh general, its strangeness departeth, and it is esteemed fit for a king's court. Thus you may earn your bread. This is your duteous work. Observe the King of the Beasts. See how it shall do its duty before the Queen, and mark the lesson." His voice penetrated, low and level, through all the din from below. Yet the men dressed like gladiators advanced towards the dais where the Queen sat eating unmoved. The lion before her growled frightfully, and dragged its keepers towards the men in brass. They drew their short swords and beat upon their shields, crying, "'We be Roman traitors that war upon this land!' Then it appeared that among them in their crowd they had a large mannequin, dressed like themselves in brass, and running upon wheels. The ladies pressed the tables with their hands, making as if to rise in terror. But the mannequin toppling forward fell before the lion with a hollow sound of brass. The lean beast, springing at its throat, tore it to reach the highly-smelling flesh that was concealed within the tunic, and the Romans fled, casting away their shields and swords. One of them had a red-forked beard and wide-open blue eyes. He brought into Catherine's mind the remembrance of her cousin. She wondered where he could be, and imagined him with that short sword, cutting his way to her side. "'That sight is allegorically to show,' Veridus was commenting beside her, "'how the high valour of Britain shall defend from all foes this noble queen.' The lion, having reached its meat, lay down upon it. Catherine remembered that Bishop Gardiner said that her cousin must be begone. She tried to say to Veridus, "'Sir, I would fain obey you in these things, but I have a cousin that shall much hinder me." But the applause of the people below drowned her voice, and Veridus continued talking. Let it be true that the Queen, being alone, showed amongst their English fineries and niceness a gross and repulsive strangeness. But if the ladies put on her manners she should no longer be alone, and it would appear to the King and to all men that her example was both commended and emulated. It was a matter of kingcraft and so the Lord Privy Seal was minded and determined. "'Then I will even get myself such a hat, and tear my capons apart with my fingers,' Catherine said. "'You had much the wiser,' he answered. The hall was now full of wild men, nymphs in white gowns, men bearing aspergers with which to scatter perfumes, and merry andrews, so that the floor could no longer be seen. A party of lords had overset a table in their efforts to get to the nymphs, the Queen was schooled to go out behind the arras, and the ladies, laughing, 
called to each other and to the men at other tables, and pinning up their hoods, filed out after her. "'I shall do my best to please your master and mine,' Catherine said. "'But he must even help me, or I can be no example to emulate, but one at whom the finger of scorn is likely to be pointed.' Veridus paused before he led his charge from the gallery. His pale blue eyes were more placable. "'You shall be well seconded. But have a care. Dally with no traitors. Speak fairly of your master's friends.' He touched her above the left breast with a claw-like finger. "'The Italian writes, "'Whoso mocketh my love, mocketh also mine own self.' "'I mock none,' Catherine said. "'But I have a cousin to be provided for, neither you nor I shall mock with much safety, if he be sober enough to stand.' He listened to her with his hand upon the door of the gallery. His air was attentive and aroused. She related very simply how Culpepper had besieged her door. He came to London to help me on my way, and seek fortune in some war. I would that a place might be found for him, for here he is like to ruin both himself and me." "'We have need of good swordsmen for an errand,' he said in an absorbed voice. "'There was never a better than Tom,' Catherine said. "'He hath cut a score of throats. Your lord would have sent him to Calais.' He muttered, "'Why, there are places other than Calais where a man may make a fortune.' Something sinister and his brooding voice made her say, "'I would not have him killed. He hath made me many presents.' He looked at her expressionlessly. "'It is very certain that you cannot serve my lord with such a firebrand to your tale,' he said. "'I will find him an errand.' "'But not where he shall be killed,' she said again. "'Why,' he said slowly, "'I will send him where he will make a great fortune.' "'A great fortune would help him little.' she answered. I would have him sent where he may fight evenly matched. He laid his hand upon her wrist. He is in as much danger here as anywhere. This is not Lincolnshire, but an ordered court. A man drew his sword with some peril there, for there were laws against it. If men came brawling in the maids' quarters at night, there were penalties of losing fingers, hands, or even heads, and the maids themselves were liable to be whipped. He shook his head at her. "'If your cousin hath so violent an inclination to you, I were your best friend to send him far away.' It was in his mind that if they were to breed this girl to be a spy, they must keep her protected from madmen. Something of mystery in his manner penetrated to her quick senses. "'God help me, what a dangerous place this is,' she said. "'I would I had never spoken to you of my cousin.' He eyed her solemnly and said that if she were minded to wed this roaring boy, they might both, and soon, earn fortunes to buy them land in a distant shire. End of section 9